Let me encourage you to take a church Bible and to turn initially to that passage that Graham read from in Exodus chapter 2. And as we followed the reading together, you will have become very quickly aware that this is the beginning of the story of Moses. And both Old and New Testaments tell us that Moses is a significant and substantive figure about whom we really need to know. He's described later on in uh, the Old Testament as the man who communed with God face to face as a man communes with a friend. He's one of two Old Testament figures, the other being Elijah, who appeared during the ministry of Jesus on the mountaintop where he was transfigured to discuss with him the ultimate redemption that Jesus was to secure in bringing people out of a bondage greater than Egypt and under a tyranny greater than Pharaoh's. And Moses and Elijah met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to speak of his exodus. And then again, in the closing book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we're told that those who gather around the throne of God are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So Moses is a significant figure throughout the whole sweep of biblical history. And we're introduced to him here in the second chapter of the book of Exodus. And most of us, I guess, will be familiar with the events which this chapter unfolds and of how Moses, when he was an infant child, was preserved from the edict that had been issued by the king of Egypt, which required that every baby boy who was born to Hebrew parents should be thrown into the river Nile. But Moses' parents hid him. And then when they could hide him no longer... His mother prepared a little papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch to waterproof it, and placed it among the reeds at the water's edge where his sister was to keep watch to see what would happen. And we know how the king's daughter came down to the riverside and saw the basket and had it brought to her. And when she saw the baby and that he was crying, she felt sorry for him. And as Miriam, Moses' sister, appeared from her hiding place and offered to fetch a nurse for him, so Moses ended up being given back to his mother, who was then paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse him until he was old enough to be brought to the royal court. It's a truly remarkable story, blending as it does the elements of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But one of the things that we must learn to do in our reading of the Bible is to compare Scripture with Scripture, remembering that the Bible is often its own interpreter. And that is particularly so when it comes to this chapter in the book of Exodus. Because in the book of Hebrews, we have a New Testament commentary on the significance of the events which are recorded for us at the beginning of Exodus. So let me ask you to turn from Exodus chapter 2 right the way over almost towards the end of the New Testament into Hebrews chapter 11. And while you're doing that, let me remind you of what God said to the prophet Samuel when he went to anoint David to be king over Israel in succession to King Saul, who'd been such an abysmal failure. And as Samuel went down to Bethlehem and 
had Jesse bring all his sons before him, he was, you remember, very impressed with what he saw in Jesse's older sons. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that serves to remind us that there are two aspects to every person's life, two aspects to your life and mine. There is an outward aspect, and there's an inward aspect. And the two are clearly related, but it is not always easy for us to determine how the one relates to the other, since what we know of a person is limited by our inability to see beyond the outward appearance. And if, for example, we're in the position of having to give a citation or offer a tribute or compile an obituary, it's relatively easy for us to go out and gather the various facts about the person's family and education and career and achievements and interests and hobbies and weave them together into a potted history. And these are the things that everybody can see. And they are, for the most part, verifiable because they're matters of fact. But it's an altogether different thing to speak or to write about things that are below the surface in a person's life, things which only God can see and can reliably examine. And if only we were able to see that which God sees, then we would have a much clearer insight into the things that shaped and molded that person's life from within and made them the person that they are or were. But that is precisely what Hebrews chapter 11 does for us in relation to Exodus chapter 2. Because Hebrews 11 allows us to look beneath the surface of the narrative in Exodus 2 and in so doing reveals to us things that we might not otherwise perceive. For one thing, Moses' spiritual history, as we find it in Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't begin with Moses. For Moses' spiritual history began with his parents, not with himself. Just look at the record in Hebrews 11. We have verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau with regard to their future. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And then verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. So it doesn't jump straight from Joseph to Moses, the next major character in the Old Testament narrative, but it puts in, by faith, Moses' parents. And that's not to say that Abraham and Sarah had no influence on Isaac or Isaac and Rebekah on Jacob, but in the case of Moses, the faith of his parents was singularly important in the way that his life was to unfold. And having had the sacrament of baptism within our service this morning, it is not inappropriate that we should be thinking about parental faith and its significance. There is little doubt that we are living today in what can only be described as a post-Christian society. 
And what I mean when I use that term is that the Christian moral values and social norms which were commonly held even when I was a child growing up have been largely eroded and I don't envy parents like Christoph and Claire in the task that they have today when I consider the particular pressures that their children will face from a society which has pushed God to the margins of its life and has rejected his wisdom and ways. And it's no easy thing for Christian parents who are beginning their families at this present time to take up the responsibility that parenthood brings in a world that is hostile to God and will, I believe, become increasingly hostile towards his people. And there's no question it's a sobering thought to be a parent in the days in which we live. But if you think it is difficult today, can you imagine what Amram and Jochebed thought? You knew, of course, those were the names of Moses' parents. But I'm sure you can imagine what Amrad and Jochebed thought as they brought this child, this boy, into this Egyptian culture. Because the culture into which their child was born was not just an alien culture permeated with paganism and idolatry, but it was a brutalized society in which children were being murdered after they were born by the order of the king. For the Egyptians, it was a form of ethnic cleansing because they feared that the Israelite minority living in the land would over time become a majority, and we understand those kind of fears. And so the order was given that all baby boys born to Hebrew mothers were to be killed. And lest you think that's very far removed from our own society, just consider that since 1968 there have been 6 million abortions in the United Kingdom, 40 million in the United States. And I'm not too sure that there's a great deal of difference in God's eyes between the deliberate killing of babies after they're born and the deliberate killing of babies before they're born. But that's another issue. But this is the world into which Amram and Jochebed brought Moses. But notice what the text says in Hebrews 11 verse 23, because as they looked at this child whom God had given them and wondered how it was that they would preserve his life, they saw that he was no ordinary child. Now, the word that's used in the Greek text can also be translated beautiful or goodly, and some of the English versions translated in that way. But the writer, I think, wants us to understand that what is being said of Moses goes beyond the fact that he was a bonny baby. I'm sure he was that as well, and I'm sure his proud parents would have looked at him with great delight. But what we are meant to infer here is that when Moses' parents looked at this child, they perceived that God had in mind for him a special destiny. And in that sense, he was no ordinary child because of the divine purposes that were to be fulfilled in him and through him. And there was on the part of Moses' parents the recognition that the child that God had given to them was no ordinary child. Now, I don't want us to draw from this text things that aren't there. 
But it does seem to me that while there is a uniqueness in the birth of this child, Moses, because of the particular purpose that God had for him, those of us who are believing parents need also to come to a similar understanding of the purposes of God as far as our own children are concerned. Dr. David Gooding, a Belfast man, puts it like this in a short commentary he's written in the book of Hebrews. Not every child, he says, can grow up to be a Moses. But God give us more men and women of faith whose prime ambition for their children is that they shall grow to be effective co-workers with God in the salvation of their fellow men and women. And there's a sense, therefore, in which every believing parent redeemed by the grace of God and regenerated by the Holy Spirit looks upon their child as no ordinary child. Not because of their appearance, not because of their intelligence, not because of their lineage, but because this is a child of the covenant. This is a child of promise. This is a child for whom God has a destiny of grace. And so risking their lives, Amrad and Jochebed hid their little boy from the authorities for some three months. And when they could not keep him at home any longer, for fear of detection, he was placed, as we've seen, at the water's edge in a papyrus basket with his sister Miriam to watch. And they did this, says the writer of Hebrews, by faith. Trusting God to find some way of preserving the child. And what God did in response to their faith was something that no human being could ever have planned or effected. For God took Moses into the very heart of the Egyptian court and into the place where the best education in the world was to be found so that he might begin the process of equipping Moses for that special task he had for him in the deliverance of his people. But though God wonderfully provided for Moses' early years by arranging for his own mother to be employed by Pharaoh's daughter as his nanny, the day came when Moses had to be brought to the royal household. Like a child going off to boarding school. And how difficult it must have been for his godly parents to leave him there in what was a very different environment to the one in which he'd grown up. But I am encouraged to believe that because of the inclusion of Moses' parents in Hebrews chapter 11, that during those years when Moses was away from them in Pharaoh's court, they continued by faith to believe God for him. And we've got to learn to do that for our children. Andrew Murray writes of the parents of Moses in this way, So faith hides the child of believing parents in the shadow of the Almighty. Let it then be a settled thing with your heart that God has accepted your trust and cannot disappoint your faith. And when the time comes that he must go into the world, commit him boldly to the waters in the ark of the covenant of God, and God will fulfill his promise. And so it was the faith of Moses' parents that laid the foundation for what Moses was subsequently to become in the plan and purpose of God. And in answer to their prayers, God preserved and shaped and molded the life of the one whom they perceived from the moment of his birth to be no ordinary child.
Now, I scarcely need to make the application, do I? What's the single most important thing that you and I as parents, or indeed as grandparents, can do for our children? Is it to ensure that we send them to a good school? Is it to put money aside for them in a trust fund to pay for the university fees? Is it to provide them with every possible opportunity to develop their natural gifts? The single most important thing that you and I can do for our children is to pray for them. And to do so not in a superficial way that asks God to keep them healthy and strong and help them to pass their examinations, but to do so with earnestness and with persistence that God by His Spirit will work in their hearts to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because on the day of judgment, no one will be asking what university they went to, or how many degrees they accumulated, or how much they earned, or what kind of car they lived in, or how big the house was. The only thing that will matter on that day is what they did with Jesus. Parental faith. By faith, Moses But of course, it had to progress, hadn't it, from parental faith to personal faith. As the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses, grew up surrounded with every possible luxury and privilege, so that in human terms, Moses had it all. But, says the writer of Hebrews, when he had grown up, Moses made a choice which was to be life-changing in that verse 24, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Not because he did not appreciate everything she had done for him. Not because he wasn't accepted within the royal household. There's certainly no hint of that in the text. It was that Moses chose to turn his back on privilege. That's what Moses had in the court of Pharaoh. But he chose to reject his privileged position and to identify himself not with the royal family of one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time, but with a downtrodden, oppressed group of people who'd been singled out by the father of his adoptive mother to serve as slaves in Egypt. It all began when he was watching the Hebrews at work one day and he noticed an Egyptian mistreating one of the Hebrew slaves. Moses looked around to see if anyone was watching and then he intervened. The ensuing scrap resulted in the death of the Egyptian. Moses should not have done it. But this act nevertheless demonstrated the choice he had made and from that point on he was identified firmly with the people of his birth. He turned his back on privilege. But he also turned his back on pleasure. Look at verse 25. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Egypt offered many sinful pleasures and Moses was in a position to freely indulge himself in whatever he felt would gratify his desires, yet he refused a self-indulgent lifestyle that was there for the taking and he chose instead a life of ill-treatment with the people of God. privilege, pleasure. But there was still more because Moses turned his back on prosperity as well. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. 
There was no richer nation in the world than Egypt. And as a prince of the realm, Moses had the key to the treasure store. But he threw the key away. And in so doing, he chose a very different way of life. A way that would mean a life of suffering and hardship. For though he led the Israelites out of Egypt and he brought them up to the very borders of the promised land, for most of the time they were profoundly ungrateful for the sacrifice Moses had made. Two key words explain why Moses made the choice that he did. The same words that are used to describe his parents. Verse 24, by faith Moses. Consider with me briefly the elements in Moses' faith. First, there was a clear and decisive choice. Up until this point, Moses had been known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was part of the society of Egypt. He lived as they lived. And everything about Moses would have pointed to that. But he knew as he began to grow and mature and as different influences were brought to bear upon his life and especially as the Spirit of the living God heard the persistent prayers of his believing parents, Moses began to feel the tug of another world and one day he said, this is not where I belong. And he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to instead be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. What was happening in Moses' life? It is that he was experiencing what the Bible calls repentance, which in the New Testament is a compound word. It is the word metanoia. Meta means change. Noia is from the word nous, meaning mind. So repentance literally means a change of mind leading to a change of heart. And that is what Moses experienced. Because in the Bible there can be no true saving faith. That is the faith that saves us by bringing us into a right relationship with God without repentance. And let me say that repentance, as far as the Bible is concerned, is more than feeling sorry. It's possible to feel sorry about something and still to keep on doing it. But that's not repentance. Repentance unto life, says the Shorter Catechism, is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of its sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And that is what Moses did. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So there was a clear and decisive choice. But there was also a thoughtful and considered commitment. You see that in verse 26? He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Now, the word regarded is a word which means to assess, to weigh up, to evaluate, and this was what Moses did. On the one side, he saw the pleasures of sin. Verse 25, he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And don't let anyone pretend to you there are no pleasures in sin. Of course there are. And they're often exceedingly and sometimes overwhelmingly attractive. But the trouble is they're temporary and deceptive. It's a bit like the fisherman who puts bait on the end of the hook to draw in the fish. It's scrumptious. 
It's alluring. It's enticing until the hook gets into your throat. And the treasures of Egypt are the same. But Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And Moses considered both of these the pleasures of sin and the treasures of Egypt, which he placed on one side of the balance sheet, as it were. And then he looked at what was on the other side. And there he saw suffering and sacrifice, hardship and pain, yes. But he also saw the promises of God. The promises made to Abraham concerning his descendants through which the whole world would be blessed. And in the fulfillment of those promises, Moses saw the hope of salvation and the prospect of eternal glory. And he considered it and he weighed it up. And as he made his evaluation, so he concluded that the royal house of Pharaoh for all its privileges and pleasures and prosperity, was no place to invest the only life that he had. And Moses chose to identify himself with the people of God, and in so doing, he placed himself on the side of Christ. That's what the letter of Hebrews says. In whom the promises of God would finally be fulfilled. And thus, the writer says, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And how in our society of instant gratification we need to look ahead to those things that last and are eternal. Let me say this to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not call us to some thoughtless decision, but to a careful consideration of everything that is involved in committing ourselves to him. One of the first books that John Stott, now in his 80s, formerly rector of All Souls Church in Langham Place in London, one of the first books he wrote, I suppose it's 45 years ago at least, it was called Basic Christianity. And in the final part of the book, where there are three chapters on our response to the Christian gospel, the first of them is entitled, Counting the Cost. And in the final paragraph, he says this, If then you suffer from moral anemia, take my advice and steer clear of Christianity. If you want a life of easy-going self-indulgence, whatever you do, do not become a Christian. And he's right. Because to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and to follow him involves a cost, and Jesus himself urged those who would come after him to sit down and count the costs. And conversely, if for you being a Christian today involves no sacrifice and no reproach, then whatever else you may have embraced, not the gospel. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Moses thoughtfully and carefully made his choice. And when we look more closely at his response, we find that Moses' continuing response was the same as his initial response. And that's not to say he kept making the same decision over and over again, as some people do. Every time there's an evangelistic appeal, they fill in the box. 
But that was certainly not true of Moses. Because his choice to be ill-treated along with the people of God and to suffer reproach for the sake of Christ was absolutely decisive. But what verse 27 goes on to tell us is that it was by faith Moses made his choice, so also by faith he persevered. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And that could be a third point, but we'll not develop it now. You see, it's one thing to say that six months ago, or 12 months ago, or five years ago, or 25 years ago, I decided for Jesus. But the big question is, are you choosing Jesus today? Whatever decisions have to be made, whatever issues have to be faced, whatever alternatives present themselves to you, is the character of your life such that your response is immediately to say, I choose Jesus. Moses' spiritual history began in the lives of his parents who by faith saw that he was no ordinary child and who in spite of all that was against them believed God for that child. So must we. But Moses when he was grown up also by faith made a choice to renounce the transient things of this world as typified by what he had in Egypt in terms of privilege and pleasure and prosperity. And he chose to submit his life to the eternal purposes of God. And so must we. If at the end of it all, like Moses, we are to receive an eternal reward. Amen. May God bless to us.